This is Laree Daniel Favors, and welcome to The Hub. Today about the very important role that culture plays in community health. Y'all know this is a, a topic I care much about, and I'm so grateful for our guests who will be joining us today. Uh, first up is Dr. Imani Shepard, currently the co-director of the Bioethics and Medical Humanities Curriculum uh, at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, Carl College of, Mis of Medicine, I almost said of music, y'all can see where my mind is at with the arts and sciences, uh, College of Medicine, where she is also an assistant professor and a medical education facilitator. And Gail Brooks, who is the principal of the Black Cross, BLK Plus Cross is how it shows up. Uh, Gail has over 20 years of proven success in the development of cultural intelligence. I definitely need a definition for that. I cannot wait to get it. Uh, and strategic brand social impact engagement solutions. She is the founder of the Black Cross, a racial equity consultancy focused on accelerating the closure of the whole health equity gap through culturally competent uh, conversations and content digital infrastructure, all of which expands access to information and care and uh, racialized data. Welcome to both of you. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It is my pleasure indeed. As I mentioned, we are here today to talk about the very important role that uh, culture plays when it comes to community health. We know that we are not just brainiacs or, or, or analy analyzers and thinkers. We are whole people and culture is a part of who we are. And culture is actually in many ways, some have described a double-edged sword uh, because of there's, it's both very critical for human development and progress. And uh, uh, quite frankly, it can also uh, culture preserve oppressive power structures, right? Because not all culture is healthy. Not all culture is inclusive. Uh, power structures like systemic racism, for example. And for our purposes today, we're going to be focusing on the impact that these roles have on the health and well-being of communities of color. And so, Gail, I, I want to first start with you uh, with two questions, uh, essentially. Number one, what is cultural intelligence? And number two, I'd like for you to help us level set on what we mean by use of the word culture and how we should be framing it in this context. So maybe we should actually take those questions in reverse. Let's start with culture as defined. And then what do you mean by cultural intelligence? Sure, sure. So, uh, Larry, I'm glad that you asked that first question in terms of what uh, what is culture, because we make a lot of assumptions uh, when in actuality it's still a highly contested topic. Mm. Um, in this instance or in the instance of community health, we like to really think about culture in three ways. Um, there's culture's ideology. So we refer to that commonly as cultural norms, right? Um, it's information, it's ideas, it's belief systems that are transferred from one person to another uh, or one generation to the next, right? Mm. Um, yeah. <laughs> then we think about culture um, as a mediator, right, of information and ideas, those specific information and ideas. Um, and this we like to call the cultural frame. Right. How, you know, how things are perceived, so to speak. Some mm. might call it the gaze in the humanities, the circles of humanities and writing. Um, but it's a lens. Mm. Right. It's the way that we view the world, how we can interpret and communicate ideas uh, and beliefs. And then finally, uh, you know, there's uh, culture as influencer. And that's probably where we are uh, concerned the most as it relates to community health. Um, because we are, in fact, trying to change things, right? Uh, so we have to change attitudes and behaviors, and culture is a tool used often um, by both positive and destructive forces to do that very thing. So it feels to me like we're, we're saying culture is an intergenerational right, way of understanding and interacting with the world. I've heard some say that culture is how we determine collectively what we think is right and wrong. And it's mm -hmm. a way of being, a way of knowing, a way of interpreting uh, the world around us. So, so thank you for that. And, and it's important for us to have that understanding because we need to be clear that multiple cultures can exist in one space in opposition to each other, right? And so I think yeah. the audience needs to be very clear about <laughs> that. There's not just one culture, y'all. Even within the Black community, we don't just have one Black culture. Uh, there are varieties of ways that culture can show up uh, and, and actually does. Uh, Dr. Shepard, this concept of cultural influence that, that Gail just shared with us, can you talk with us about the ways that culture can impact our health uh, and how it influences our health at the individual level? 
Yeah, the, and that's a really interesting question. So there's a couple of ways that that can be um, perceived. So we can think about cultural impact in terms of how we understand um, normal and abnormal, mm. right? What does the normal body look like? What is the healthy, beautiful, you know, able-bodied person? All of these things, all of these adjectives that we have relative to our, you know, subjective perspectival understanding of health. Mm. Um, and we can look at it in terms of, you know, say the perpetuation of things like anorexia, right? I need to be a certain body size. I need to be a certain body weight. My body needs to be shapely in a particular way. So even though I could die from getting a Brazilian butt lift, mm. my butt will look great, right? And so we have those kinds of things that push us into perceiving ourselves, you know, and the people around us within a framework of, health and beauty and normal and, and abnormal, right? Mm. The other thing that is becoming um, increasingly, I would say more prevalent um, is self-surveillance. If you think of the impact of technologies, technological huh. you know, advances, um, everybody who has on these little Fitbits and you have your all of your Apple gear that tells you, good morning, you didn't sleep well or your heart rate is so and so and so and so, <laughs> right? Um, and so now you want these things not only because they're part of the trend, but you're also participating in sort of a collective um, evaluation of the self, right? Mm. And that tells you and is always monitoring you and you're always monitoring yourself. And that also becomes a part of the sort of cultural collective consciousness. Mm. Um, how am I supposed to behave? How many steps am I supposed to have today, right? So are you just walking in a circle because you wanna make sure that you have the 10,000 steps because your office coworkers are, are doing a thing that you wanna win? Or are you actually participating in active engagement because you want to be better, because you want to have a, a degree mm. of wellness? And so there's all of these little influences relative to, again, how we understand ourselves, how those selves are situated in society, and how they shape the way that we perceive our own bodies, not just relative to are you sick or well, are you beautiful, not beautiful, are you abnormal, mm. are you normal, right? Mm -hmm. And all of those things directly impact our understanding of our physical physiological and cognitive health so even as much as and, and I'm, I'm i know our audience is diverse but this is a black show uh, so <laughs> we think about um the way that we come to value the aesthetic like the black aesthetic the idea that i have lips lips are for you know protecting my mouth or whatever physiological function they have but whether or not i think my lips are beautiful is a form of culture like i have you know these body parts and these body sizes and these body <laughs> shapes and this skin complexion that serves a physical function but how i feel about them whether i have positive feelings towards them or negative feelings towards them is also a function of culture. And, and as I'm thinking about the young folks who are coming up as they, you know, I'm a Gen Xer, so I remember what life was like before texting and I, I, I miss those days because uh, I'm a terrible texter. <laughs> like, I'm terrible at maintaining technology. But my children, I'm noticing, have their native users. This is the like they, they speak this language texting almost better than they speak English. And culturally, I'm seeing how these devices um, in a non-medical sense are really allowing them to sort of I don't, I don't want to call it a hive mind, but they all, all of the people in their space seem to have this same understanding. And so again, y'all, culture isn't just about wearing kente cloth and practicing Kwanzaa. We have like youth culture. We have the tech divide cultures. All of these things can help to impact um, who we are as a people and how we feel about ourselves and how we interact with our own bodies. But there's also a, a, a spiritual component to this, isn't there as well when it comes to our agency and our health? What would you say to the impact of cultural spiritually when it it comes to a sense of, of physical and, and I don't want to call it mental health, but physical and, and health of our interior emotional environment. And that one's me. I just yes. Want to... yes. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, a couple of things um, that you, that you touched on and hopefully I'll, I'll circle back to um, the overarching um, aspect of your question, but um, we also have to keep in mind that culture is fluid over time and space, right? And so if we, even in the way that we think of ourselves, I tell my students all the time, like I was born black 
and now I'm African American. Mm. And some people, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> some folks is Negro and right. we also POV <laughs> and we BIPOC. And then about 10 years, we'll probably be something else. And that yeah. will shape our understanding of the self, right? Mm. If, if we want to, you know, um, say, map that onto the way that we perceive our own bodies. I mean, we can look at, and I know everybody talks about Lil' Kim, but there's also like the Sam, Sammy Sosas that are out there as that's well, right? right? And, that's right. And having that's this right. sense of what does the healthy body look like and being taught that the that the standard normative body is that of the white body. Yeah. And so if I want to have a sense of beauty and health and normalcy, then people are pushing towards that, even though everybody else in the world, and I'm gonna just throw this out there, are trying to have, you know, the full lips, right. are trying to have the full hair, are right. trying to have, I mean, they get the Brazilian butt lips for a reason. Who has those naturally? Just something to think about, right? Mm. Um, and, and so the way that we understand ourselves, we have to situate that within the framework of mental health, right? Um, and and remembering who we are, mm. and I think that a part of that as a as a community has always been situated within our spirituality and our religious beliefs. Yeah. Right? yeah. Um, even if we think of our revolutionary movements, right, Black Power movements, et cetera, have always been sort of tethered to you know um, our religious organizations. Even if you think of like the the work of Malcolm X, right, mm. being tied to mosque, right, <laughs> and so right. that there is an inherent relationship between the way that we understand ourselves, the way we understand our health, and the sort of metaphysical aspects of our health. And even if you look at, you know, the way mm. back history is, right, your 1500s and 1300s and all of these things, um, we tended to lean into our understanding of our metaphysical health, um, our spiritual health, our spiritual well-being, mm. that allowed us to be able to get through so many varying levels of oppression. And I think that we continue to do that. And that's why when you have, you know, these, um, I always call it the attempts at genocide of black men is what mm. we are experiencing, right? We are, yes. we are actively being hunted, right? Yeah. Um, and we lean on the church to help us make sense of what we are experiencing culturally. Mm. We lean on each other. That is who we are as, as a people. And that provides us with a sense of solace. Mm. Uh, that are, that allows our mental health um, to have some kind of foundation. Yeah. So I so I don't think that those things have have necessarily been mutually exclusive in the black community because that's been the sustainable thread for, for us. That kind mm. of spiritual, metaphysical health that allows us to get through the everyday aspects of of our oppression. That just as an aside has also consistently dampened our immune systems, right? Ooh. Racism in and of itself is the, you know, global pandemic that we have been fighting for hundreds of years. Mm. Mm. And so when COVID comes, this is a second pandemic for us. Right. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So our yeah. immune systems have already been dampened. It's called cross sensitization, actually. We cycle through the general adaptation syndrome because we're always in fight or flight. If if you're being pulled over, what happens, right? Your nerves get bad, your heart starts beating fast, your cortisol level increases. Even if you're driving by somebody else who's been pulled over, somebody your nerves else, get, yes, right? secondary trauma. And to the spiritual aspects, what do you say? You're like, please let them be okay, Lord, be yes. with them, right? You might have a whole yes. prayer. Because, mm. because the reality is that could be the last time that they do anything, right? Wow. And so- our immune systems are always in, are always cycling through the general adaptation syndrome because of our first pandemic. Wow. So when the second pandemic hits, our immune system now has to sort of disaggregate and fight yet another thing. Mm. And then we wonder why we have so many people in, in the African-American community who were hit by COVID worse than anybody else. And it really is because our immune systems were already at work. Mm. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, and I think that we don't spend enough time talking about the intergenerational, the epigenomic, um, you know, the impacts uh, of race and racism on on our bodies mm. and on the, you know on our health as a whole. And we need to do that if if we want to be able to make 
long, you know, long-term change. Otherwise, everything else that we do will be anecdotal. We'll just be putting band-aids on things and not really looking at what the meat of it is. And the meat of it is, you know, we're always already fighting. See, you, you're so making me convinced. Always, yeah. You know, and then <laughs> you're convincing me that again, my original theory, which is that we have to leave and find someplace else to go because if oppression is dampening our immune system and not that that was at all your point, but the, see where my mind goes, is, we got to go. I'm in flight mode. I'm like, we got to get out. Uh, the movie mattered. I'm in flight mode. He wasn't wrong. He wasn't wrong. Uh, Gail, I, I want to come to you uh, in light of that. Um, you know, I'm stuck on it. oppression dampens our immune system because to me, that means we all have pre-existing conditions right? like we tried to say it was just people who were black and overweight black with diabetes now nah, if you black you have a pre-existing condition because our yeah, immune system have condition. been weathered mm. sorry gail i, w- <laughs> I want to come to you uh can you talk with us a bit about the way that culture some of the ways that culture as an ideology can influence community health because i as, as we're talking about this in my mind when i was approaching the conversation i was thinking about black culture but now i'm thinking more just as a result of this conversation about the fact that we are a culture trying to survive another culture and and that to me just elevates the level of concern even more than it already was lord bless my heart pressure uh what are some of the ways that culture as an ideology can also influence our community health? Well, you know, I think Ivani did a really good job of giving us examples in contemporary culture society where um, we are impacted uh, by just visual imagery that we see on a daily basis in terms of what we should do to our bodies, what it should look like, um, what we believe is uh, attractive, right? So mm-hmm. it also it also determines kind of what we hold dear right? And what is acceptable versus what is frowned upon. So in this instance, I think it's, it requires us to think about culture as ideology, but also culture as a mediator, right? Mm. Of power and authority, right? So culture actually uh, determines how resources are allocated. Um, it, it is put in place to main st- maintain structure and order in, in a particular group or society, right? Um, so I'll give you an example. Culture mediates, uh, the media itself is an example of culture mediating, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> How we uh, process information. Actually, what information we get to begin with, right? right. Um, and so if we don't know that our polling places have been closed, we talked about this in an earlier episode, Ms. Lurie. Yeah. Uh, if we don't know that our polling places have been closed, we can't vote. If we can't vote, we can't tell people that we need to reform reproductive rights, right? Mm. Um we also want to think about cultural narratives. Now, cultural narratives, they sound a little bit more complex than they really are. Stories, <laughs> narratives are just the stories that we tell ourselves to make meaning of life and the world around us, right? Mm. Um, sometimes they're good. They inspire us. They motivate us. A good example of one um, in the Black community now, Black generational wealth, Black generational health, yep. um, involved Black fatherhood. These are all cultural narratives, right? Right. Um, but they can also be manipulated to drive unsavory opinions of a particular cultural group, right? So policymakers rely on cultural narratives to sway public opinion. That is what public opinion is or how it's, how it takes shape, right? In the form of cultural narratives. Um, now in tandem with cultural narratives, we, we have to think about cultural markers, right? So we talk about culture and belonging to a particular group, right? Well, how do I know which group by mm. cultural markers? Those are signifiers, indicators. It's how we classify people. It's how we put them into a box, right? Mm. How So that we can learn to recognize a particular benefit or threat later on in life, right? So ideology <clears throat> is used to create stories, cultural narratives around particular groups that justify their marginalization or oppression, mm. right? Um, how many times, how many times do we talk about, you know, um, the way that African-Americans are presented in the media after they're arrested, right? right? The headline alone, the yep. photographs that you might see, right? Yep. Completely different. Um, so those are good examples of how stereotypes are amplified, um, exploited, right? To drive or reinforce ideology. Hmm. They want people to, if we want to drive the privatized prison industry, well, then we need to let people know that crime is really high, right? 
So, and we, and we need to get these criminals off the street. Right. <laughs> um, so these are just some of the, I guess, more accessible commonplace ways um, that culture mediates kind of how we think about uh, what's good, what's bad, and who's worthy and who's not. Can we sit here for just a minute? Because culture as a mediator, it makes a lot of clear sense. I can draw some very fine, you know, I'm a lawyer. I like fine lines. I like, I like direct lines that I can cr clearly see, bright red lines. I love those types of lines. Culture as a mediator in the context of interracial reality makes a lot of sense to me. The ideas that you just put forward, uh, the way we frame who is arrested in the media, whether you get a mug shot versus a shot of you as a high school graduating senior, often, you know, these are all things that sort of play a part of that. That makes a lot of sense, and I can have a very bright line rule and understanding when it comes to white-black culture interacting. But what about if you, the culture that is a part of your village, the culture that you are part of, also mediates and, and, and shapes narratives in such a way that it is dangerous for the proponents of the culture? Like if you're, can we, and I know, I, I know I, somebody in the audience is like, here she go talking about dangerous black music again. You're right. Here I go talking about a song with a hook that says, I don't give a fuck about your feelings. Part of my language is literally the hook of the song. Like songs that mm -hmm. say like, you know, like I, these are the, the, these are cultural tools as well, aren't they? Isn't our, the, the, our, can you talk about what danger can exist? I'm not saying all of our music is like this because it's not all of our music, but can you talk with us about the danger that can exist when the culture that we embrace, that we love, that we support, and that we feel a sense of pride in is also serving to, to mediate a series of, of communications that are against the very lives that we're trying to protect? Yeah. Yes. Um, and those are good examples. I mean, you, you already hit the nail on the head in terms of, um, you know, I don't give a F about my feel about feelings. Um, the vocabulary that we use that our young people use simping, caping, right? Being simple because I'm compassionate, trying to be Superman because I want to actually help somebody out, right? We disparage mm. those who want to lend a hand, who want to give back, who want to empower other people, right? Um, so I think it's an issue. It's a huge issue. Um, it helps to perpetuate violence. Uh, domestic violence rates are sky high and continue to rise. Um, I know Imani can speak to that being from New Orleans, uh, where it has some of the highest rates in the country. Um, but New Orleans is not the only place, right? I think if you were to let, let me back up for just a second. <laughs> I have to say, you know, uh, I didn't know. So I, I, I work in, in health equity. I've been working in culture forever and ever. It wasn't until recently when I shot community narratives in Detroit and New Orleans, which is how I actually had the pleasure of working with Imani, mm. um, that I really understood the impact that our, how would I say, um, dream deferred culture, <laughs> pop culture oh. is having on young people. Uh, you know, it it is, in fact, um, oppressive and it is limiting our imagine our black imagination. Right. Mm -hmm. It is limiting our ability to kind of uh, believe that there are other uh, realities that are possible. Yeah. Um, and it's also being exploited. If we think about kind of what songs are at the top five right. on the charts. Right. Um, and why is that? And it, we can go back to what it, what was it, the late 80s, early 90s, uh, when C. Dolores Tucker was waging war against hip hop music. I remember uh, that as well, a kid. <laughs> right? <laughs> but there's a point there. There's a point there because it doesn't serve us. It serves the oppressive forces that want to keep prison pipelines filled, right? Mm. Um, and, and need to kind of create a, a vision of a particular group or, or, or culture as being um, antagonistic so that they can get the support of the rest of the uh, country, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> or voters to actually put these policies in place um, and to sustain the oppression that comes down through these structural forces. So I'm not sure if I answered your question. <laughs> I, I'm but, stuck on um, dream deferred culture as a phrase because we know what happens to a dream deferred. Like, does it ripen? Does it explode? You know, so th the idea of having a dream deferred culture, to me, I think that's a wonderful label uh, to put on it because it sort of helps to, I, I don't want to be, I, I was about to say, I don't want to be the C. Dolores Tucker, but C. Dolores Tucker wasn't wrong. Like, she was right. You know what I mean? And I remember as a kid being like, that mean old woman, she just want to stop our creativity. 
But you and, know, okay, now y'all, I wasn't going to jump in. I wasn't going to jump in. Wait, wait, hold on. You know, Tucker was complete crazy pants. She was crazy. <laughs> crazy pants. Let's just throw that out there, right? Because she was you have crazy. to keep in mind that the theories of power know mm. the, the distinction between, okay, you can control and oppress people via a stick or or a carrot, right? Mm. You you can co-opt them, which is a hell of a lot easier because then I don't have to keep coming around with the stick all the time. Right. Right. So right. if you co-opt them to believe a particular thing about themselves, they will perpetuate that thing. So again, you don't have to keep mm. walking around with the stick. And so when we're talking about some of this oppressive language, when we're talking about these oppressive behaviors that we are perpetuating in our own society, we have to keep in mind that that many of these people unfortunately are pawns, right? Yes. If you take out equitable access to housing, equitable access to education, equitable access to make a certain uh, amount of, of um, sustainability in terms of your living, your living wages, what we, have, what we have told Black people over and over and over again is that your way out is either football, yep. or you're going to end up in jail, or you can make music. Mm. We never talk about the fact that the music industry in, in all of mass media is owned by five companies, mm. right? If you look, it's only owned by five companies broken to a whole bunch of other little companies. And these companies, you know, shape that narrative that Gail mm. is talking about. They shape the way that we understand ourselves and the way that we articulate our own experiences, which is why we went from public enemy and, you know, NWA and dead Prez and, you know, Talib Kweli and all of these people that were singing songs about liberation that were like, look at your surroundings that were about, you know, understand the work and, and understand your own work. We went from all of these forms of music, which was around the time of, of the right. crazy pants lady, right? <laughs> Right. We I'm glad you're making all... me feel bad about saying I don't want to say I want to see the Lord's side. I appreciate That's the love, that. honey. That's the love. You knew who you were getting. <laughs> you're like, don't feel bad. Not all of that was good. <laughs> but but then... we went from these narratives, right, that were about remember who you are as Black people, the foundation of language, the foundation mm. of humanity, right? Mm. These are dangerous things to put out into the world. Mm. To, have to, to have people remember about themselves, it makes it that much harder to co-opt them. Mm. It so makes this... it that much harder to oppress them. And so, you know, we have been pushed into this framework of, oh, you know, I could be your mistress. I could be your Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday morning chick. I can be all of these things because it's about controlling the way we perceive ourselves. So if we want to really look at this music and look at language and look at how we are oppressed via that narrative, I think we need to sort of note causality mm. and think about how we can change the, the mentality that we are teaching and that we're reinforcing as opposed to essentializing it in that way. But that's just my 15 cents and that's not my area well, of specialization. So that, that, was short, least, that was at least worth 25 cents, doc. That was at least 25 cents. Oh You're short changing yourself. <laughs> Go ahead, Gail. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm I'm chomping at the bit here because I thought she was going to go somewhere else that I know she is super qualified to speak on and I'm hoping that she can, um, you know, expound after I kind of enter this point. <laughs> and, and that's the, the notion of cultural loss, right? Um, and bringing it back to the community, right? Bringing it about, back to how um, we stay grounded, uh, not in and of ourselves, but through, you know, Ubuntu, right? I am mm. because you are, right? And so what we're seeing, what we have seen, let me correct myself, over time, periods of time, I mean, look at Detroit alone, uh, in terms of displacement and gentrification and the mm. destruction of community ties, right? Um, kind of leaving young people to, to flounder or families yeah. uh, separated, right? Yeah. So we can go all the way back to slavery, but we can come all the way up to 2022 in Southwest Atlanta, right? Or, or the West side of Detroit. And these same things are, are happening. And so when we don't have those strong uh, cultural pillars, uh, cultural institutions, cultural values, attitudes, behaviors uh, modeled for us, right? Within our communities. Well, yeah, we, <laughs> I'd like to say not to bring it spiritual, <laughs> all the way spiritual, but yeah, we, you know, we fall into these lower vibrational behaviors. Um, and that becomes <laughs> Eating low vibrational food on top of it, all of it. <laughs> 
Exactly. Don't get me to like what we're consuming and what we're putting in our bodies. Mm. I mean, Detroit is still having issues with lead in their water supply. Right. We know one of the top, uh, you know, side effects of lead exposure in children is aggression. Right. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Uh, Inattentiveness. So you have smart people in Detroit who are terrible test takers. Wow. Uh, right. And, and if so you're not able to. Yeah, you can't advance it. You can't advance yourself because you can't navigate the system because the water you're drinking is literally contributing to your inability to show up in a way that the intelligence testers uh, of this society can withstand. So this is this is a lot. I want to unpack this. I know we got some other questions, but right now I just need us to sit in this space for just a little while because uh, you said something there. Brooke, uh, I was about to call you Brooks. Call you everything but Gail. Gail, you said something right there. The cultural pillars the cultural institutions, the cultural values, if these things are not modeled for us, and that also is a contributor to cultural loss. And and I understand that there are, there are reasons for why our music looks the way that it looks there and sounds the way that it sounds. And we get that there are reasons. And yet with all of the reasons and the intersecting, well, who owns this and who owns that? And you know, that's why all of that explains the reality. But the reality is we are mass marketing a culture that is perhaps antithetical to black survival. And I'm wondering if there is something to this idea about holding on to a slave culture while trying to be free and how that can slave culture allows you to navigate enslavement doesn't necessarily prepare you for freedom. Right. And so I I have questions about that. I want to unpack this idea of cultural pillars and institutions, because as I'm hearing you talk, Gail, I'm reminded of the story of Rebecca Gratz, who was a Jewish woman in the 1800s. And one of her biggest concerns is, yo, we got all these Jewish immigrants coming from all over the place. They don't speak the same languages. They don't even know all the rituals and the tools. So she creates a massive cultural institution to make sure that whether you are a Polish Jew, uh, an Egyptian Jew, a Ghanaian Jew, a Russian Jew, a Ukrainian Jew, no matter where you came from in the Jewish world, you were going to have a sense of uniformity around some basic cultural pillars, institutions, and values. And then they did the work of replicating that institution. We now know it as Hebrew school. So I'm wondering, and we're going to go to a commercial break because I hear my producers giving me the, the, the signal. We're going to have to go to commercial <laughs> breaks. I want us to think about this through the break because it seems to me that if the music industry is what it is, and I know we're talking about health, but here we are. The music industry is what it is. If all of these other cultures are, are creating this oppressive space where, what is it? Our, our immune systems are dampened from the oppression that we're engaged in. Where are we and how are we able to build those cultural pillars, institutions, and values that are going to be a counter to this because otherwise we might as well just lay on down and call it a day. And I know the ancestors ain't do all that dreaming and working for us to do that. And I know we here are not doing the cultural work that we're doing for that to be the answer. So on the other side of the break, I want to pick up this conversation with where are and how do we build not where are the cultural institutions, how do we build them? How do we build an institutional model that will present the clean water next to the dirty water that seems to be really reminiscent uh, of what much of our culture is now uh, inculcating and promulgating? Uh, We're going to head into a commercial break. I'm not done with routine checkup with the amazing Dr. Imani Shepard and Gail Brooks from Black Cross. Much more to come on the Laree Daniel Favorite Show. Y'all got 50 pages of notes, and I, I ain't even gotten to half my questions. We'll be right back after this. We're back with the Loree Daniel Favors Show on Sirius XM Urban View. I've lost the use of my heart. Welcome back. Welcome back. You are listening to Loree Daniel Favors on Sirius XM's Urban View, where talk empowers and becomes action. We are in the middle of our routine checkup with folks from the Hood Medicine crew. We've got the amazing Dr. Imani Shepard and the awesome Gail Brooks with us today. And on the other side of the break, we were talking about uh, these institutions, cultural institutions that and, and on this show, we are clear that an institution as compared to an individual, there's no contest. If you are an individual working against a well or organized institution that institution is designed to chew you up and spit you out because that's what institutions do they are systems that are not dependent on individual uh participation which is why the presidency is an institution doesn't matter who you stick in there certain things are going to happen because the institution is bigger than the individual now the individual in that position can certainly direct which direction the country is going but if you are an individual as compared to an institution the odds are that the institution will be able to out organize you and my question is where are the cultural institutions 
know, I said I wasn't going to say where are they. I was going to ask, how do we build the cultural institutions that would allow us to withstand the cultural oppression that so dampens our immune system that we are rendered all into a state where we have uh, pre-existing conditions, the racism weathering. So, Gail, we were talking about, I mentioned the story of of Rebecca Gratz uh, from the Jewish community who recognized that culturally the Jewish community in the early 1800s was fragmented. And so she created an institution, we now know it as Hebrew school, to help bring a sense of uniformity uh, to what she saw as a disorganized space. How do we build cultural institutions within our community that can take on, because y'all see my notes, I got pages of notes here. Like, how do we build cultural institutions that can take on this reality as we sit here on MLK Day and in a way that would be not just a a protective factor against the harm of the the cultures of oppression, but would also be a space where we could grow in strength um, and in our ability to have the the capacity to to cultivate a culture, to build a culture that is really designed to speak to our ability to thrive as opposed to just surviving the, the mess that we're currently in. Well, you know, it's interesting that you use Hebrew school um, as the example. We have these institutions. We have some of them. We just need to support them again and help Mm. them to reemerge and kind of reclaim the power that they once had. Um, For example, the Black church, right? Uh, The Black church is still very much involved in community health, uh, whether it be through community-based partnerships that provide, you know, food, clothing, that kind of thing, to opening clinics, right? Uh, Church-owned and operated uh, healthcare clinics in communities where, let's say, hospitals have been shut down, as you know, another epidemic we might discuss another, um, at another time, right? Um, so there's there's the Black Church. There's also HBCUs. McKinsey thankfully wrote a a, a great uh, report last year. I think it was in April or May. They published a report on HBCUs and the impact that HBCUs have um, on the Black community as a whole. Mm. Uh, on the, na- the nation's economy, but also on those social, socially vulnerable communities in which most of them are located, mm-hmm. right? So if you look at a map and you look at HBCUs on a map and you look at the high, uh, areas of highest social vulnerability, right? In the US Southeast, think about the, the Bible Belt yeah. <laughs> um, or the Black Belt, as I, as I should say, literally right on top <laughs> of each other. Um, so we need, to, mm-hmm. we need to form more multi-sector partnerships with HBCU so that we can educate, um, so that we can innovate, so that we can build pipelines uh, for moguls to create their own media platforms, right? Mm. Um, And then also, I will say, you know, these community-based organizations, there are some amazing arts and culture organizations that are also addressing health holistically. And when I say holistically, I mean, you know, mental, physical, financial, social, and community, you know, relational health. Yeah. Um, I want to, I kind of want to punt this, hopefully Monty doesn't get mad, but, um, you know, again, <laughs> punt this to her because again, as I was shooting this narrative, I, I, you know, I talked to some amazing folks in New Orleans at the Ashe um, Cultural Arts Center, which has a program uh, that works with community health workers in New Orleans. They educated me on the history of mutual aid societies dating all the way <clears throat> back to Africa and the role that what some people might consider social clubs actually played, um, huh. you know, in, in the improvement of lives, right, of, of African Africans and, and here now African-Americans. So I don't know, Iman, if you want to add on to that in terms of kind of some examples of some of these institutions, but I that thought was, that was, yeah. that was a great punt. Cause that's literally one of my next questions for you, Imani <laughs> Shepard, uh, Dr. Shepard, because of this partnership that you just had, uh, that looked at, uh, community health assessments across predominantly black zip codes in new Orleans. And that included folk places like the lower ninth ward, Treme. These are places that were devastated <laughs> by hurricane Katrina. We just had a conversation with some uh, reporters on the continuing efforts to rebuild now 18, years later, uh, talk with us a little bit about the influence of culture at the systemic level, particularly as it pertains to your experience in this partnership with the Ashe uh, Cultural Arts Center. 
Okay. Um, and I know y'all are going to be like this child right here. She always wants to circle back to other questions that, you know, we I'm from New circle, Orleans. Sis. If y'all have met circle. us, y'all met us, y'all understand, honey. We, <laughs> all right. So, so I do want to, I didn't caught the football. I appreciate it. If that's what you do, if they're the punt, that's what I'm doing. Um, but I do want to circle back <laughs> to, to this relationship between the individual and the institution and how mm. this relates to those pillars, right? I absolutely agree with you that, you know, if there is an institutional body, they are almost always going to be able to out-organize the individual. But I also don't want us to forget the significance and the power of the individual voice, mm. particularly mm. on today, right? And if we think of your MLKs and, you know, um, Asada Shakurs and Che Guevara's and all of these, these individual voices that change the institution, I yeah. think that that, you know, especially from the, the work that I do, I, for me, I think that that is wildly significant and, and us understanding how we begin to make institutional and structural change, mm -hmm. right? If we think of, you know, the Black Panther Party and the fact that now the breakfast programs, when your children go to breakfast in the morning, mm -hmm. that is because of the Black Panther Party. When they go to clinics, that is because of the Black Panther Party, right? There's so much of our history that starts with the singular voice mm -hmm. and how that singular voice helps to build collective voice and collective community and collective change, specifically relative to health and well-being, um, and pushing back on these institutions that I think that that is um, really significant for us to reinforce in terms of what we are teaching to help build these structures, to help build institution. We have to remind ourselves of the power of our own voice and remind our children and our children's children of the power of their own voices. Um, and so that brings me to like even the impact of Flexner's report that is, that really shut down almost all of the uh, medical schools that trained black doctors right. and is, the, is primarily the reason why we we are so underrepresented in medicine right and so we have to get together and design systems for ourselves mm. you know relative to the example that you gave and not wait for permission and not yes. wait for approval yes. and not wait for legitimacy because i think these are the things those last things of waiting for, you know, legitimacy and waiting for permission are the things that have hindered us as a collective body. And right? waiting for funding, uh, waiting and, for agreement, waiting for uh, white that's blessing. Right. Yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah, and I, and I wasn't going to say that. Right? But <laughs> I'll, I'll say that part. Is. Since we circling back, you I'll know? say that part. <laughs> right. And so, you know, relative to the work that, that I do with Ashe and Ashe Cultural Arts Center on Aretha Castle Haley <laughs> in New Orleans. So if you out there that's just like 17 21 something like that <laughs> and Orleans, you know what they do is t they sort of tether their work to the history and historiographies so of the writing of culture right mm -hmm. uh, relative to art and medicine and well-being to tackle issues of structure and cultural violences mm -hmm. right um in new orleans in particular it you're almost suffocated by the amount of culture that is there, we are spoiled by it. So wow. when we leave and it's a Tuesday, you're like, what do you mean y'all don't handle drum circles? Mm. It's Tuesday. <laughs> you know what I mean? You know, when I go to a festival, like I expect a certain thing, I expect a certain engagement. And that has always facilitated a high level, I think, of mental health and well-being for us because wow. you knew if you're walking down the street that 15 other people's grandmom and them, as we would say, are all looking out for you. And so that relative to Gail's point about cultural loss, we don't even we even use that term anymore, right? Yeah. It's, it's yeah. no me. People are like, anime? No ma'am. And no me. <laughs> Right. And, mm -hmm. and the effects of cultural loss, not just in New Orleans, but throughout our entire community, there is a loss, there is an absence that we're trying to fill and we end up filling with foolishness. Right. Wow. And so the work that um, I did with Ashe and that I've done in the past looked at um, environmental impact assessments. It mm -hmm. looks at um, the roles of community impact assessment, things like that. And what we're looking at is, is the exchange between, say, gentrification or the development of different architecture on the body itself. Mm. So, for exa example, Claymore Corridor um, is 13 
13 different small neighborhoods within Treme, which used to, which is the oldest African-American community in the United States. Wow. And it used to house the highest number of oak trees also in the United States. Mm. And they decided that they wanted to build an interstate right there, as opposed to in a predominantly white neighborhood. And they cut down um, like 150 of the 200 some odd trees. Mm. 90% of the black businesses that were there were all shut down. And now they're undergoing a huge amount of gentrification, right? And so you have smog Mm. and you have now inequitable access to housing. And now there are no grocery stores and in many places there are no lights. So now you have safety issues, mm. um, inequitable access to healthy food options. You know, the list is long on yeah. top of the fact that our only um, hospital for poor people charity was closed after Hurricane Katrina. On top of the fact that oh, many of God. the drains do not, you know, are, are not cleaned out. Some of them have actually been filled with cement with people building, you know, other kinds of architecture. And so if it rains for more than two hours in this area, you now have flooding. Mm. Right. Mm. Um, so no hospital, no grocery store, no lights. <laughs> right. No, no society. How have... do you even build society in a space where you can't get <clears throat> and your And then basic you wonder spread. why there is crime. It's wow. because people are trying to figure it out, right? Right. We right. we unfortunately also always live within a sense of we're always having to be resilient. Yeah. We're always having to cope, right? Mm. And and so many people use this as the flag that they wave. Oh well, we you know we're so resilient, honey, but we're tired of being resilient. And resilience is not supposed to be a long-term status. It's supposed to be what you employ as a tool for this moment. And then you move into the space where you don't have to resolve anymore. Absolutely. And so (sighs) what you're seeing is, you know, when people talk about like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, Mm. that does not exist in many parts of New Orleans. You do not have the basic foundational structure. You do not have the the Mm. basic cultural structure, institutional structure to maintain health and well-being. So people are just trying to figure it out. There's a level of desperation. And I'm not saying, you know, it's not pure chaos, but understand that cultural loss without a way to, without something there to supplement what people need, people are going to figure it out. What would you steal if you were hungry? Oh, right. And would you Who be a, would you, would you be a looter? You felt like you and your family were in danger. Right. And, right? and if you're in All danger and hungry, are you a looter if you take access to the food or are you someone who's protecting your family? That, too, is shaped by cultural narrative. Absolutely. And there are lots of books that did that after Hurricane Katrina, all of the physicians and the police and all of that, that looted stores Mm. were not not, were not called looters. Right. Mm. Even to the point to where we were called refugees by our own refugee means you do not have a country. And so all of this becomes the psyche of the city now, gentrification and loss and violence and trying to survive and longitudinal resilience that should not exist. And all of that has impacted the health and well-being of New Orleans people, mm. right? If I have to drive 35 minutes to get to a grocery store and I'm not making enough money to actually buy anything real from that grocery store right. or, you know, um, I need to go to the doctor, the nearest one, there's one on one side of town and one 45 minutes on the other side of town. And some of the buses only run once every hour. Mm. Right. So don't get hurt on the weekend. Right. Don't get hurt on the um, weekend and, and be hurt only right. by, by public transportation. So we're we're at the end of our, our time. And I, I'm, you said during the break, this is a six part conversation. So I could easily see this being a six part conversation. Uh, but I, I want to just say first, I'm just so grateful that you all were able to help us to break this down because sometimes we use the word culture and it's so amorphous. It feels like we can't quite get a handle on it. We can't get a, a sense of its tangibility. And I feel like you really helped to explain the tangible connections between culture and and a variety of health uh, outcomes, yes, but just our relationship to the health community generally and in relationship to some of the institutions and pillars that are either designed to push us towards a greater sense of collective health or, or bring us away from it. We have two key questions that we're asking ourselves on the show this year. Number one is posed by Sonia Sanchez, how do it free us, right? And number two, my question, because I'm no Sonia Sanchez, is does it free the village? And I didn't come up with that either, but I just took it from somebody else. So like, how do it free us as individuals and 
does it free the village? Does it heal the village? And I am really excited about using the balance of this year. We're only in the second week out of 52, y'all. But I want to use the balance of this year to ask ourselves questions about how we can heal the culture so that, which is really a function of healing ourselves, right? And we had this moment of gratitude this morning that said, shout out to those of you who are determining not to pass on the trauma that you inherited to another generation. And that to me feels like culture work as well. Uh, we have just a moment or two left, but I hope that both of you can give us your, your information. I know people want to continue this conversation and I know that there's a lot of work that you're both doing and putting out into the universe. Can you let us know what your social media contacts are, how people can follow you. Uh, and, and we're going, this is a, this is one of those seed planting conversations. We're going to water and fertilize this ground throughout the rest of 2023. Uh, Gail, let's start with you. How can people follow you and, and the work that you're doing? Sure. So uh, personally, I am Gail Boogie across all social media platforms. <laughs> so pretty, pretty easy to find. Um, but my work, you know, I, I don't know if I didn't talk too much about my work in communications, leveraging culture, cultural narratives, but we have kind of a repository of all of that work called alive and in color.com. Mm. Um, if you register as an advocate, you get access to previous content, videos, tools, tips, literacy, things, um, all related to whole health equity. Yeah. We might need you to come back and just talk about Alive It in Color on a separate segment on a separate day. Uh, Dr. Shepard, how about you? How can people follow you in the work that you're doing? Okay, so I'm old, y'all. So I don't have all of the the, the Twitters and, and Facebooks and all this other kind of stuff. So <laughs> looking all of 22. <laughs> the Institute's website. I'm, I'm, so I'm also the Director of Medical Education and Social Scientific Research at the Medical Communities Health and Health Disparities Institute. So you can go to medhdinstitute.com. Um, that's, the, that's the website for the Institute. Um, or I'm over at Call Illinois uh, College of Medicine, and hopefully my my book will be coming out soon. Um, the Parallax of Medical Progress that looks at you know the problems with this so I, this whole idea of medical progress when we're developing these stuff. Who are we developing them for? Because mm. because they cannot be accessed equitably. Right. Um, and so looking looking at things like that, yeah. So you can reach out uh, either of those. <laughs> and and please do, y'all. These are some brilliant folks who are doing amazing work uh, in the community. And also, you need to follow Hood Medicine if you're not following Hood Medicine already. Dr. Nisi Hudson is usually here, uh, but we want to make sure that people know Hood Medicine is a, a beautiful collective. And thanks to that our partnership with them, uh, we get access to all of these brilliant geniuses like uh, Dr. Shepard and like Gail Brooks, who get to come on and blow our brains um, and make us feel better about not wanting to be compared to C. Dolores Tucker, but still right. Recognize that there is some truth that we got to unpack. Uh, so you can follow Hood Medicine at hoodmedicine.org. You can make them your Amazon Smile charity. And they are here every Monday uh, for routine checkup with the Larry Daniel Favors Show. Uh, I am grateful for both of you. Thank you so much for this work. These are some of my favorite conversations because there's no real answer. We're just striving. We're striving and we're, we're making our way forward. Thank you both for being with us today. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for having me.